Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, George Contreras will join us to discuss the genome defense. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, DNA. Seems like it's something that we should own, but is it? This is the story behind an epic legal battle to determine who owns your DNA. Joining us today to discuss this story is Mr. George Contreras. Mr. Contreras received his law degree from Harvard and teaches intellectual property, science policy, and the law and ethics of genetics at the University of Utah. He served on high-level government advisory committees, and his articles have appeared in Science, Nature, the Harvard Journal of Law and Technology, among many others. His work has been featured on NPR, PRI, and the BBC Radio, and his opinions have been cited in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and The Economist, among other places. He has penned the new book, The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA. Mr. Contreras, thank you so much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, it is a fascinating case that profile here in your book, The Genome Defense. I'm curious how you became interested in this particular case. So I study patent law, which sounds like kind of a boring thing to do, and uh, sometimes it is, but uh, this is a case that I had been aware of for years, even before it was brought. Some of the disputes and controversies surrounding the patenting of human DNA had been brewing for a number of years, and so I followed this case as it made its way through the courts all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it just became more and more interesting um, at each stage, and I realized this is a case that patent lawyers and geneticists and others will be following, but isn't necessarily one that the general public would know about. But I thought it was important enough and affects our lives enough that I should try to tell the story in a way that ordinary people could understand it. And it really is. I'm curious if you could set the stage. What happened and how did the suit come about? Yeah, so back in the 90s, the early 90s, before the human genome was sequenced, individual genes were being discovered, especially genes that had some association with disease. And as they were discovered one by one and sequenced, the usually the universities or the companies that sequenced them would get covering those genes. And a patent in the United States allows you to exclusively dominate a market for something. And if that something is a human gene, then you have the exclusive right for 20 years to be the only one who can run genetic tests or create drugs or diagnostics using that gene. And so a company here in Utah, Myriad Genetics, working with the University of Utah, did get patents covering two human genes, BRCA1 and 2, which are closely related to breast cancer and ovarian cancer. If you've got certain mutations in these genes, you know, your likelihood of getting one of these cancers is significantly higher than the general population, like eight to 10 times. So it's a big risk. And so if you're in a family that you know, has hereditary cancer, you probably want to get yourself tested 
uh, to see if you have one of these mutations. But because Myriad was the holder of a patent covering these genes, they could charge whatever they wanted to for the test. And they ended up charging comparatively high price. So it was around $3,000, kind of late 1990s dollars. So it's pretty expensive, wasn't covered by many insurance policies. At the beginning, wasn't covered by Medicare or Medicaid. And so a lot of women who were in families that had hereditary cancers could not get tested, even though they really needed to be tested. And this created a lot of concern in the medical community, the genetic counseling community, in the genetics community. And eventually, this lawsuit was brought by the American Civil Liberties Union and the Public Patent Foundation to challenge those patents that allowed the company to corner the market on this important test. You can tell us a little bit about the people who brought the suit, how they came together, and that made them stakeholders in this particular case. Yes. So the American Civil Liberties Union and Public Patent Foundation, they're basically public interest law firms, right? They're the lawyers who brought this case. And they got interested in it because of the issues that I mentioned to you. But in a lawsuit in the United States, you've got to have people who are actually injured who bring the lawsuit, the plaintiffs. And so the lawyers assembled a coalition of 20 different plaintiffs to uh, be named in this suit. And they were a wide variety of plaintiffs. You've got breast cancer advocacy organizations like Breast Cancer Action. You've got the genetic counselors who couldn't talk to their patients about these mutations because they couldn't get tested. You've got geneticists and physicians who were unable to run the tests at their clinics or laboratories. And most importantly, though, you've got six individuals, six women, who for various reasons were not able to get this test because they were on Medicaid or because they didn't meet the eligibility requirements that the company imposed, and they claimed an injury as a result of these patents. So, yeah, so these 20 plaintiffs were assembled, and uh, they're, they're the plaintiffs in this lawsuit. And then, of course, on the other side, you have the biotech company that held the patent. This is Myriad Genetics. How did this company form, and what was their thinking in terms of holding the patent? Yeah, so the company formed back in the early 90s, and so it was a one of the big scientific races of the decade, right? So for 100 years, scientists knew that there must be some genetic link to breast cancer in certain families. It was just too common in some families for it to be coincidental. But it wasn't until the 80s that gene sequencing technology advanced to a stage where we could actually explore the genetic origins of this disease in these families. And Mary Claire King, who was a researcher at the Berkeley, she spent years like, tracking down families, doing epidemiological investigation to figure out whether there was an individual gene causing these cancers. And in 1990, she made a really significant announcement, which was, yes, she and her team did locate a gene called BRCA1, or at least say they, they theorized that there must be a gene called BRCA1 somewhere on the long arm of chromosome 17, right? It was a famous announcement that she made at a big scientific meeting. And that announcement sparked a race, a worldwide race to sequence and discover the actual location, the exact location of this gene. Academic groups from around the world jumped in from the U.S., from Canada, from Japan, from Germany, the U.K., because finding this gene would be very significant. 
And one of these groups came out of the University of Utah, which for various reasons, I'm happy to talk about later, was pretty successful in the gene hunting business. A researcher at Utah named Mark Skolnick formed a company with Wally Gilbert, who's a Nobel Prize winning uh, biologist from Harvard, the founder of Biogen, along with some venture capitalists. They formed a company to find this cancer-causing gene. They had funding from venture capitalists, from Eli Lilly Corporation, some funding from the National Institutes of Health. And with this funding, they succeeded in winning this race. They were the first ones to identify the BRCA genes, both BRCA1 and 2. And because they were a company, their goal was to corner the market on genetic testing for the genes. And so they filed patents immediately upon sequencing these two genes. And therein lies the issue is that they filed patents on these genes. And the question was, can you file a patent on something that's in nature, like a gene? Yeah, exactly. And you might think the answer should obviously be no, <laughs> you can't. But for 20 years, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office have been issuing these types of patents under this kind of interesting and clever theory, right? So a gene, of course, you know, we've got a 20,000 genes in ourselves, and they reside on 23 chromosomes. There are about 1,000 genes on each chromosome, roughly speaking, and they're all over the place, right? There's a lot of genetic material in between the genes. It's hard to figure out where a gene begins and ends. Chromosomes are these big, long, undifferentiated strands of uh, DNA. That's what exists in nature, right, inside each of our cells. If you're a researcher, and you figure out where a particular gene begins and ends, and then you splice it out of that long chromosome, right? You knock it out at the two ends, and you've got a freestanding gene in the lab, and you, know, you amplify it, you multiply it millions of times so that you can work with it. That does not appear in nature, at least not in that form, right? And the patent law in this area, it, it really originates from the discipline of chemistry, right? Because in 1790, when the patent laws were first written in this country, you know, there was no biology. Biology wasn't a science. So you have chemical arts, mechanical arts, and electrical arts in sort of the 19th century, divvying up of the world of science. And biology, when it arose in the 20th century, just became part of chemistry. But to a chemist, that gene that separated out of the chromosome, because you broke covalent bonds, right at the two ends of the gene, it is a different molecule, chemically speaking, than the chromosome. And when you create a different molecule, you know, you've got something different. And when you create a new type of molecule, a synthetic polymer, a new type of metallic alloy, yeah, you know, that is patentable. And so that's the theory that the patent office used to justify all of these gene patents over the years. Many, many patents were issued based on this, as you point out. But eventually some people said, wait a minute, is this really the case? That's exactly right. And it actually took quite a while for this to happen. Myriad's patents issued, started to issue in 1997, but there had been patents issuing on human genes for a few years before that. And everybody was kind of happy with that situation. And the biotech industry was very happy Investors were happy. The pharmaceutical industry was happy. Patent lawyers were delighted because now they've got this new line of business that they can engage in. The patent office looking like it was very productive and pro-science. And so 
nobody challenged these. There was no one sort of looking at the situation from the outside saying, you know, this just doesn't make sense. This shouldn't be happening. And I take it back. There were people who looked at it and said that, but there were none that had sort of the litigation wherewithal and firepower to actually bring a case in court and successfully challenge this practice. And thus began the journey through the courts. How did the whole process play out? Yeah, yeah. So this was typical of litigation in this country. It's a whipsaw effect, right? You start out, you've got to start out at a trial court, you do that, but then the side who loses can appeal and, you know, you go through that. Then you can go to the U.S. Supreme Court. This case went to the Supreme Court twice, kind of a very weird way that I don't have time to uh, to explain uh, right now. But it, it was a four-year process. It took the ACLU about four years to prepare the case and decide they even wanted to bring it. And then it took another four years for the case to make its way through the court system until it finally reached a Supreme Court decision in 2013. And the decision is what? <laughs> well, it's a spoiler here. <laughs> but don't worry. It's, um, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot uh, the, beyond the final result. I, the result is pretty surprising. It's a unanimous decision. Um, of the Supreme Court, nine to zero, which itself is kind of unusual if you follow the Supreme Court at all. Decision written by Justice Thomas, in which basically the court says these naturally occurring DNA sequences are not patentable. They're not inventions. They're not products of human ingenuity. Just because you isolate it and purify it from the longer chromosome, it doesn't make it an invention that you can patent if it's the same DNA sequence um, that exists in the body, which is exactly what Myriad and every other genetic diagnostics company was doing at the time. There were arguments on both sides. Some of them were not legal. Some were regarding how this would either stifle or spur innovation. And there were arguments from both sides that they would, would do either. How did that play out in terms of how this affected the business of biotech? Yeah, yeah. So you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the interesting things and one of the things that many people don't realize about our legal system is that arguments about policy and economic effects and so forth, they actually matter, right? Courts, especially the Supreme Court, are not just looking at the very narrow legal doctrine answer. They're thinking about the bigger picture, for better or for worse, right? So in this case, there were arguments on both sides, right? People who supported the patent said, look, if you don't have these patents, there's not going to be an incentive for other companies to come along and discover the next gene and create the next diagnostic test. That turned out not to be true. We do have an increasing number of genetic diagnostic tests. Most gene discovery like this is done in academic laboratories funded by the federal government. And... The fact that we don't have patents on these genes, it has done one thing, which negative, which is it has made it hard to form a new biotech company centered on running diagnostic genetic tests. However, those tests are still being conducted. Nobody that I talked to has been able to point to any genetic diagnostic test that stopped being performed after these patents became invalidated. The, the testing has shifted to large testing companies like LabCorp and Ambry and so forth, they now run the test. You can get these tests from 23andMe today. 
at least for the major BRCA mutations, for you know whatever they charge, hundred hundred and twenty five dollars for the twenty uh, three andme health related analysis. So those fears, uh, you know, did not come to fruition in this case, not at all. After having covered it, after has there been anything that surprised you about the whole process in which it took place? It really it was a fascinating process for me to sort of research and write the book about this case. I, I mean, again, I, I saw it coming. I knew the issues and I watched them year after year as they went along. I was surprised that the case was brought. I was kind of thinking along with most law professors that study this stuff that, you know, this is settled law. The patent office has been doing this for 20 years. I agree that these patents shouldn't be issued, but that's life. They're there. It'd be really difficult to challenge them. And it took a bunch of outsiders who were not inside the patent system to really take a step back and say, you know what? No, no, no. We shouldn't accept this. We should challenge it. And it's kind of hopeful in a way, right? That in, in our legal system, outsiders and, and people who just have a strong feeling with something, they can use the legal system to change the law. You know, that, that's how the common law works. And that's kind of an encouraging thing to me. One always worries, of course, as we see in recent court decisions, whether these sorts of things can be reversed. Do you see that for this type of issue, or do you think this is a matter where it's unequivocal? No, no, nothing's ever unequivocal around here, right? That is another aspect of our legal system. Things get reversed. So the Supreme Court could reverse itself. That, I think, is pretty unlikely. But the place where there's right now, today, action going on is in Congress. So Congress is perfectly free to reverse decisions of the Supreme Court through legislation, as long as they're not doing something that's unconstitutional, right? And so there is a bill right now that's in Senate committee called something like the Patent Eligibility Reform Act or something like that, that, that would just explicitly reverse this decision and three other Supreme Court decisions relate to what can and can't be patented. The biotech industry was never happy with these decisions. And outside of the patenting genes area, there are some other problems with the patent line. It's a little fuzzy in some areas and could use some clarification from Congress. But this is not an area that I think they should mess around with. There's probably a number of other areas they probably shouldn't mess around with, but do. <laughs> Yeah, that's never stopped them before. Indeed, indeed. Really, again, a very fascinating case. And people picking up the book, after reading it, what would you like them to really take home about not just the case, but maybe our legal system and how these cases play out? The way I wrote it and the audience I was trying to reach, I think I want people to realize that this is a story about people, right? This is not a legal treatise. It's not a law review article, right? I mean, I, I try to explain enough of the law and the science sort of it's understandable, but it is really a case and a book about the people, the plaintiffs, the advocates, you know, the judges, the people at the company. You said at the beginning that there's a bad guy here, and that's the company Myriad. And you could look at it that way, but I, I really, I tried to present as, as fair and balanced a picture as I could. And one of the things that did also surprise me here is that the people at Myriad, they, they weren't just stereotypical, greedy capitalists, you know, rubbing their palms together at all the money they're earning, right? I mean, the scientists, there are scientists there, genetic counselors, they, 
their tests actually did help people. It did save lives, you know, and they were stunned when the ACLU brought this lawsuit because they, you know, most of the rank and file employees there thought, you know, we're like, this is good work we're doing. We're, you know, we're helping humanity. Now, they're the people who did their pricing strategy, you know, uh, were trying to extract the last penny uh, that they could from the market. But, you know, even that at the end of the day, that's how our system for better, for worse works. You've got shareholders, you've got venture capitalists pounding the door um, saying, you know, what are you, you're going to reduce the price of your best-selling test, you know, we'll, we'll like dump your stock before we let that happen. So it's a multifaceted story and there's never a clear good guy or bad guy in a case like this. Everybody kind of thought they were doing the right thing, but at the end of the day, I, I do think the right result was reached. We were just talking with George Contreras, the new book, The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA. Mr. Contreras, thank you so much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of The Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.